Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest's name is Wayne Rivers. Man, did I absolutely have a blast talking to Wayne. Wayne is the CEO and founder of the Family Business Institute that's been around for 28 years. And holy cow, did I wish I would have talked to him back when we owned our family business because his wisdom is deep and wide and the stories he has and shares with us today are just hilarious, but also filled with tons of practical information about how to keep business prosperity and family harmony inside multiple generational businesses because the biggest question that successful family businesses answer is are you a business first family or a family business along with owning the family business institute wayne is authors of four different books the latest one which is called our family business crisis and how it makes us stronger he appears on the today show cnn msnbc cnbc business week He's quoted in the Wall Street Journal, so I was extremely happy to have him on the show. Super lucky to dive into his knowledge. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Wayne. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Morning, Wayne. How you doing? I'm fine, Ryan. How are you? Doing good. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, You've got a lot of experience and uh, exposure to the family business world, which is where I came from. And so I want to dive into your expertise and some of the stories that you've got. So before we do that, for our listeners, can you give them a little bit of a backstory on why you started the Family Business Institute and exactly what you guys do? Sure. Yep. Our origin story is that I was the banker and, and got into financial planning. And, uh, you know, banks do good things for family businesses and financial planners do good things for family businesses. But I kept asking people why they didn't implement the plans that they had paid for. And it came down to, well, uh, you know, my son and daughter aren't getting along very well in the business and and I might just be better off selling it outside the family or uh, I can't get along with my sibling and we don't agree on the future of where the company is headed. And I'm just so frustrated. I don't see any point in doing this elaborate planning that you laid out. So, you know, 50 or 60 percent of the plans paid for by clients just went unimplemented. And I was thinking, wow, that's frustrating for for me, but it surely must be frustrating for them because they've paid for an elaborate plan. Don't get any value out of it. And uh, so I I started thinking about it and I was like, well, you know, really, maybe the opportunity is to do more stuff along the, the lines of communication and helping them structure their roles and responsibilities and accountability in the business. And, and planning for the future of the business, you know, aligning people's visions for the future, et cetera. So we kind of stumbled into it. And there wasn't, at the time, there really wasn't a whole lot going on. This was 28 years ago. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on in the family business space. We were one of the 
you know, we were one of the first pygmies in the jungle, so to speak. It's still not a very well-developed industry, but we were among the first consulting firms. And uh, we probably made a lot of mistakes, and we probably screwed up as many people as we helped, but we learned a lot of things. <laughs> and, uh, and today, we, we tend to not screw up very much, and, uh, and, and our, you know, our main deliverables are, are succession planning. It, it used to be all planning between moms and dads and children. You know, the World War II generation was getting out. And, and now that now we're getting to the point where most of our assignments are with sibling teams that are trying to transition to generation three or maybe even four. So, the, you know, the World War II generation has retired off and died off. And, uh, and now their kids are retiring age. And uh, so it's, it's always about where's the family business going to go next? Is it going to stay in the family? Is, is the family, gonna, family tree going to continue to multiply? And we're going to have we went from two shareholders to eight to 36. You know, is that going to be the case in the future? All those decisions have to get made at some point. And we sort of help people uh, draw order from chaos and, and, you know, keep the family together. Really, we only want two things, just like our clients. We want business prosperity and family harmony. So how hard can it be? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it, unfortunately, or fortunately for everybody, it is actually a lot more difficult. <laughs> And yeah, I know. I was kind of joking. <laughs> oh no, I know. I, I just love the. I love because it's totally sarcasm. And and I actually wanted to hear the stats from you because there there's a lot of these common stats about successful generational transfers and the stats. Um, I'm yeah. assuming mm-hmm. those are probably t- uh, top of mind for you. Can you clarify some of those for us? Yeah, I'm not sure I'll get them right. It's been it it, it used to be something like seventy percent fail between G1 and G2 transition and and then like 12% make it between G2 and G3 and 4% make it G3 to G4. And I think those are fairly close. And I used to think those statistics were just a bunch of gobbledygook. I thought they were made up and fake by lawyers and CPAs and financial planners and, and the helping professions who want family businesses to transition. And they want to get that, you know, that contract to do that business. I thought it was a bunch of made up crap. And, um, had an interesting thing happen. We were moving. We bought a new building and we were moving from our old place to our new place. And I said to my assistant, man, we've got a lot of paper going back to the 80s in these files and we really shouldn't move it. Can you go through and sort out you know, what we need to keep and what we, what we need to save? And she came back to me and she said, I, I took a stab at it, but you're the only one who knows what, we, what we're going to need to save from these files. So I thought, well, I'll go in there and spend a couple hours cleaning out the file cabinets. Well, I was in there for four days. <laughs> I really, I wasn't too happy about it, but somebody had to do it. And anyway, so four days I'm in there and I'm going back in time and remembering when I was a young man calling on these family businesses. And man, they were bulletproof, Ryan. They were printing money. They had it going on. You couldn't tell them anything. They had figured out all the secrets of life and all the secrets of business. and. A lot of those files I was putting my hands on in 2015, those companies aren't around anymore. Crazy. I bet you that. So they, they had it going on. And some of these guys were really successful. I remember calling on a guy. He was the founder of the business, and he was only about 58 or 60. And their company's cars, their fleet of company cars were Mercedes and Lexus and Jaguars. And I'd never seen that before. And I thought, oh, my gosh, these people must be killing it. Well, they're gone. That business is gone now. And I couldn't tell you the exact reason, but I was going through those files and it just dawned on me, those statistics are right. Those statistics, they're daunting and they're scary, but they're probably right. Now, a lot of family businesses don't transition inside of a family for a real good reason. Maybe they sell the company. 
maybe maybe the next generation of of kids are off the charts smart and they become Harvard professors, right? So maybe there's 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 legit reasons why they don't succeed, but they just don't. They they rocket up over a period of years, they plateau and they die, just like that curve you learned in business school. <laughs> and you know the half life for these family businesses might be fifteen to twenty five years, but but you know creating any sustainable business. You think about, you read these articles about the turnover in the Fortune 500. How many of the original Fortune 500 companies are still in the Fortune 500? It's like 10 or 11. Yeah. And it's crazier actually that I just saw a stat on that um, from this book called Exponential Organizations, where there used to be a longer lifespan, but now even with Mm -hmm. all the technology, it's down to like the average span is like you know, seven to 15 years or something like that. It's it, it, isn't that crazy? I yeah. mean, the, yeah. So the, all these disruptive technologies mean that Google enters the Fortune 500 and Singer Sewing Machine, which used to be the biggest company on earth, is, is a goner. And family businesses are the same way. It, it is unbelievably hard to sustain excellence. How many teams have repeated uh, as, as NBA champion or World Series champion or Super Bowl champion in the last few decades? It's, it's, it's a precious few. Pat Riley, who used to be coach the Lakers and, and who now is with the uh, Miami Heat, he says it's the disease of too much. You know, you have an incredible season. It all comes together. You win a championship. It feels great. And then, you know, everybody says, oh, my God, it's, since I was a little kid, I wanted to reach this pinnacle. And now I've done it. And, you know, mentally, they check out a little bit. And also they get more endorsements and they get more fame and more people want to take them out to dinner. And, and, and so all of a sudden they take their eye off the ball a little bit. Maybe they want more money because Kobe was getting too much and I'm not getting enough. And in the next season, it just it's really, really insanely hard to repeat. So the same thing that happens in basketball, the same thing that happens in Fortune 500 happens to family businesses. But, you know, the, the, sometimes, you know, we, we rail in, in my weekly blog, we rail about complacency all the time. Mm-hmm. And even now we run into businesses that that, you know, they just love to hear the sounds of their own voices and they're enjoying amazing success and they're making millions uh, of dollars each year. And, but there, you can just see the seeds of complacency and uh, you know, a business's destruction is sown today with those seeds of complacency because it's so unbelievably hard to sustain anything over long periods of time. So I, I, I totally agree with you and I, and I like, cause you always have to be changing and adapting. And I want to ask you, you know, what are the successful ones doing? But before you answer that, I, I think it might be tied into this vision and how do you avoid that complacency? Is that, is there a major correlation between the two? Yeah. The vision, the vision needs to be at least updated, if not revamped uh, entirely every few years. And it ties into the other question you asked is how do you sustain it? And the way you do that is you, you have to reinvent two things. I think you have to reinvent the business every so often, because, you know, if you were in the buggy whip business, you might have been the biggest buggy whip manufacturer in, in the world in 1890. But by 1910, you were having a hard time. So, you know, you've got to adapt the business. In fact, I read a study just a couple of years ago about family businesses, and these were super successful family businesses. And I forget, I'm going to probably say this wrong, but they were ones that had been around for at least 100 years and had net worth of over $200 million U.S. And, and some other criteria. I mean, in other words, this was the cream of the crop. And the article pointed out that of the, say, 50 companies that met these incredibly rigorous criteria, 
26 still owned their legacy business. That was the point they made. Well, what I saw though was the reverse of that. 24 or half, right? Okay, 26 versus 24, that's half. Half had gotten out of the legacy business. Mm-hmm. Now, how about that? Now, those people realized that the legacy business, say, say, you know, in the Southeast here in America, the textile industry was so mighty at one time. And people, people's families survived for two or three generations with these massive plants cranking out socks and underwear and shirts and everything else. And, and man, they're gone. Uh, 90%, maybe more, are gone now. Mm-hmm. Those people didn't reinvent. They clung to the legacy business too long. So, so you've got to reinvent. But the second component of that is so important. And it's the most important thing that I could share with family businesses is you're in a people business. Even if you're in the IT business, you're still in the people business. And if you're not out there creating a new vision, reinventing your company, and then attracting the best people all the time, you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, the one of the challenges that I had with my dad when we own our business and the clients that I see this, this whole, I, I, I 100% agree with you that you constantly have to be changing. And I'm, I'm more into that world where I love change all the time, maybe to um, my fault at some points. But how do you constantly take, so how do you take someone, the, the owner, or the founder, maybe the first gen, who has a crazy passion for usually whatever it is that they do? And then, mm-hmm. like, for example, like my, my dad owned a copier business, and then I got involved, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, those are kind of boring, but there's this great, huge business, and I like the people, and we were reinventing to become an IT service provider, but mm-hmm. doing that together to reestablish that vision while understanding that this is a huge asset, like, it was such a challenge because it's like, okay, it's not just your vision anymore. And how do you facilitate that? Because that was such a huge point of tension for us. You, you've you've got to, um, so ironically, we did this exercise with a large copier company in the last 10 years, and it was very difficult. Uh, the founder was still around, very much detached from the business, but still very much interested in controlling things. <laughs> and And the way he did that is he controlled the money. Right. He controlled all the money. So he, he delegated pretty much everything else, uh, sales, operations, service, everything else. But but he he clung to the money and, you know, money talks and you know what walks. So um, what we did, because his his daughters, who were very talented young women and ambitious young women, um, they were really struggling with that over this exact issue you point out. So we brought in the mix. We brought in the top 10 non-family employees. So we had the head of sales, the, the controller, several of the top salespeople, several of the top people that were a couple of top people that ran the service side, and then t- some of the key managers, the brightest of the, of the various uh, location managers. And, um, and we started from scratch. And, um, you know, we got, <laughs> I kind of, I mean, I kind of tricked the guy in a way. I, I, it's kind of an underhanded tactic, but I asked him, his name was Keith. I said, Keith, if, if you drop dead, if you got struck by lightning, tell me exactly and tell your girls exactly what you would like to have happen. What would, what would be your drop dead advice for, for rallying and, and preserving the business and keeping it moving? He said, I would call in these people, you know, Jane and Sally and everybody else, and I would do this, this, and this. And he went on for about 30 minutes with a very elaborate, well, I mean, the very, a very solid outline of a plan. And, and I just said, well, hey, that's, that is really well thought out. What are we waiting for? 
Why should we wait for you to die, which might happen next year or 27 years from now? Why don't we go ahead and put that plan in place now and get Jane and Sally, just like you said, and begin to think about sales over here and distribution over here and customer service over there? Why don't we go ahead and do that? And <laughs> he looked at me. He gave me the stink eye. <laughs> <laughs> it was his idea, right? <laughs> it was his idea, yeah. And the girls were excited about it. And we really created a terrific uh, high-energy team. And one of the things as dad had pulled back is nobody from the home office had been out to the field offices mm. in person in like seven years. So we created it. We created a new business plan and they were going to go out and hit the high spots of the business plan with all the offices. And so, you know, this, so we really kind of energized and the people in the, in the field offices were so happy to see somebody from corporate. They're like, Oh my gosh, this is great. You know, and it, it really created a lot of momentum and enthusiasm and, Improved morale in the company for a while, and it worked so well. I think they quit doing it. All <laughs> <laughs> right, you guys usually right. You saw some yep. results, and uh, they're just going to continue with. Yeah, yeah. Try. So I did a push up today. No need to <laughs> get all exercised about it tomorrow. So what what happens? So that I mean, I, I love how you know there's some push to action, but what happens in these businesses where the the industries evolve, right? So the vision will have to continue to change and reinvent yourself. And what happens if the first gen? or the people that control the money don't want to change, right? For, to go back to, I mean, while we're on the example of the copier world, I mean, talk about an industry that's changing every single day where, yeah. you know, there was a guy locally here's like, I, he will never sell software, manage print or IT services ever until he dies. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, guess what? You're in the floppy disk business now. So <laughs> what happens when, you know, well, like it, I was not involved in that business, but my dad and I trying to figure out how do we invent and create a vision together? And if you, if mm -hmm. the first generation is not on board with that, how do you work through that? Um, you know, the, the, the way that the best explanation of that I ever heard was a guy whose dad, uh, like the first example with Keith that I, that I talked about, his dad controlled the money, even though he was really not a factor in the operations of the business anymore at all. And uh, his son, who was actually pretty successful at growing the business, uh, in spite of his dad's reluctance to change, um, said, you know, I feel like I'm playing poker with a guy and he's got, you know, we've got a deck of 52 cards and he's got 51 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought that was a good analogy. And he said, the only card I can play, and this is, this is, a, this is a trump card now, the only card I can play is I can put my keys on the table on my dad's desk and I can say, okay. You know, you want to control it? Go ahead. It's all yours. He said, but I'm not willing to do that. And that's really the thing, Ryan, unless that succeeding generation is willing to put the, all their cards on the table and put the keys on dad's desk and, and turn everything in and walk away from it, they have no chance of getting anything changed. You can lead that senior generation horse to water, but yeah. you cannot make them drink. And I've been, I've been thinking about this for 28 years. <laughs> you cannot help someone who doesn't want help. You cannot change someone who doesn't want to change. You cannot reason with an unreasonable person. Oh, so so <laughs> there's, there's no way to force someone who controls a business, whether it's ownership or they control by money or they control by fear and intimidation. There is no way to get them to do something that they don't want to do. So some, now, you know, occasionally, you know, I kind of tricked this one guy. I didn't feel good about it, but it, since it was his idea, he kind of had to go along and he did. I remember one guy wouldn't do any work and, and we caught, we, we were talking to him. The dad was about 80, son was about 53 or 54. And, uh, the son was real frustrated and he called us one day and he said, can you come see me ASAP? 
my dad has had a change of heart. And uh, the change of heart happened because he was uh, at home at night relaxing in his palatial home uh, on the golf course. And there was this loud noise and a helicopter landed on the lawn next door. And they pulled his golf buddy out of the house on a stretcher and flew him to the hospital because he'd suffered a major stroke or heart attack or something. And, and, and my guy woke up the next day thinking, holy crap, that could have been me. And he went to his son. He said, you know, I've been thinking about it. And you're right. We need to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. So th- that, that's what it took. So it, it wasn't anything the son said. It wasn't anything that we did. It, it wasn't anything that anybody could control except what the old man controlled between his two ears. Mm-hmm. And he got scared. And that, that fear, the emotion, that powerful emotion, fear, caused him to say, boy, we really do need to plan for the future of the business because that might have been me on that stretcher. Well, and like, it's unfortunate because, you know, being the second generation and having that experience or I literally did, I, I tried to quit like three different times <laughs> because mm-hmm. I was probably, uh, I was definitely way younger and probably more on the asshole side of how I delivered my message. <laughs> but it was like, you know, other than you don't want to wait for that. You know, as like we want, I want to participate in these, these second generation, the people that have to work 10 times harder than everybody else to, to yeah. finally earn their keep. And then to yeah. run into that stone wall, it's yeah. so frustrating. Like, well, so what, oh, yeah. if you've got a younger parent, what do you do? Just wait it out 30 years until his friend dies. I mean, it's just unfortunate that something like that, you know, has got it's, to drive it. when I think about our clients over 28 years, three of our most successful clients, and, and I'm talking about, well, I can give you the I can give you the particulars on each one without mentioning any names or company names or anything else, obviously. So one guy uh, literally he got in an argument with his dad one day and his dad stood up from behind his desk and ripped the shirt off him. He just <laughs> grabbed the front of the shirt and tore the buttons off and just and tore the shirt to shreds while my guy was standing there. And he he quit. In fact, he quit twice. And then the dad would beg him to come back. He's a gifted businessman. And um, the company was about $2 million gross sales at that time. And, um, and they, finally, my guy said, look, Dad, you know, you're getting up there and, and let us, next generation, me and my three brothers, buy you out. And Dad didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, and finally just realized it was the only way to go. So he came to the closing table, and let's say the price of the business was one times gross sales was $2 million. And at the last minute, he said, nope, I want $4 million. <laughs> And my guy said, golly, this is, this is bad, but I see the potential here. So he said, okay, $4 million. So they, the, the lawyer redid everything, and they came back the next week, and they were going to sign the papers. Dad said, nope, I want $8 million. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and obviously, having a change of heart. Well, my guy worked it out and said, you know, I see the potential here. And he knew the numbers, and he paid, paid $8 million over time. Uh, to his dad. And, and now the business is, gosh, that's been a long time ago now, probably 30 years, 25, 30 years. They net $8 million in profit every year. In fact, <laughs> they, they net some years a whole lot more than that. So he made the right choice. He overpaid for the business, but he saw the potential and he knew he could, he could do it. And he did. And he's, he's a gifted businessman. That's example one. Another example, a, um, a, a guy out West, you know, his, his dad was kind of probably an alcoholic there's about $10 million in sales. And this guy more or less forced his dad out. He just, you know, usually the senior generation bullies the younger generation. This guy bullied his father right out of the business. And, uh, and now that business, which was 10 million in sales on dad's watch is more like a billion in sales on next generation's watch. Whoa. And that's actually, and I got two examples of that actually. So 
My only point is that these three guys, every single one of them, quit. They quit and walked away until things got so bad their dad said, you've got to come back. Okay, I'll come back under these conditions. And, and, and you, you've got to be willing to quit and you've got to be willing to stay quit. So what that means is you better have your resume uh, updated. You better have your CV ready to rock and roll. You better know what the marketplace is out there for somebody with your skills and talents. In other words, if you're going to quit something, you don't you don't want to move all you don't want to move all the furniture out of your house onto the front lawn unless you've got new furniture to replace it, right? <laughs> so, you know, if you're depending on a business for your livelihood and you and you want to quit because you're miserable because the first generation won't make any changes, by God, you better have your next career lined up because somebody's got to put groceries on the table. Well, you know, the problem that I had when I was going through that situation is all the connections that I wanted to reach out to get the job that I wanted to get would have mm-hmm. read like raised red flags all over the place. So I was like trapped. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt completely trapped when I was going through that. Yeah. Sometimes you can use an intermediary. Uh, if you've got a trusted advisor that has some ethical requirement to keep things quiet, a lawyer or CPA or somebody, maybe even a minister who can reach out in the business world. In fact, you could do that. Say, say you have a buddy mm-hmm. who's a lawyer that you really trust. You could say, you know, I, I want to take all the names off my CV and I want you to send them to these specific companies that I know. And just inquire whether they have openings or interest in someone with this particular set of skills and talents. You know, that's it's it. That would be a time consuming and maybe even expensive way to do it. But if you feel trapped, you know, obviously the the place your mind goes is you've got to find a way to get out of that trap. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need to spend a little money and a little elbow grease to make it work. Um, So this is a. The good segue into an article that you wrote lately. And I think a lot of businesses have tried to attempt and we did too and i handled it in a unique situation but bringing in other individuals into the business on the executive team whether it's to run it or to get involved you know how do people even start tackling bringing outsiders into the business like that yeah yeah that was an article i wrote that was a wall street journal article that i I just happened to be quoted in but uh yeah um well to me if you're not bringing in talent i mean why aren't you Mm -hmm. if you're not looking for help whether it's sales talent or operations talent or financial talent, you know, if you're not, if you're not looking for super talented people to help bolster you and your dad and and what other family members might be there, then you're already, you're already going in the wrong direction. So some of, some of the most successful family businesses we know of have, have really been good at finding that bridge management. So you've got dad who's 70 and next generation who's 40. Well, you can't transplant all of dad's knowledge and contacts from his brain to yours. So maybe you do need a 50-year-old guy and they were a 55-year-old guy in there to, to work for five or 10 years to do two things. Uh, number one, groom the next generation in the things they need to know to successfully run the business, you know, a different business in a different future, really. And, and, then, and then get between dad and that next generation a little bit and provide that balance point. Somebody that has enough success in, in his career and enough confidence to say, no, wait a minute, dad, you're, you're being a little harsh here. You're asking for a little too much. You're putting a little too much pressure on next gen. Your expectations are not realistic. You know, you can't, you can't get $8 million for a company worth only $2 million. And sometimes, again, that could be an advisor. advisor. It could be your lawyer or CPA or someone from the Family Business Institute. You know, we would love to, <laughs> we would love to get into some of it. We, we roll up our sleeves and get in the middle of those fights all the time. But, um, yeah, if you're not looking for talent, and, and specifically if you're looking for um, bridge management talent, it's out there. It, it really is. Now, having said that, 
most of these companies that have bridge management um, have tried to go, they've had to go to the well two or three or four times before they make it work. Well, okay, because that was good. It's a learning curve on both sides. So you, you don't know, I mean, you, you have, say you have a, it, this is, most people don't even have this. They don't even create a job description. They don't even create a scope of authority. They just say, <laughs> hey, Steve Jones over here has a lot of talent. Let's get him on board. Well, what will he do when he get here? I, I, I don't know, but he's talented. Let's just get it. Or no, no, what and, he'll do is he'll he'll actually come in. We're going to overpay him so that way we don't have to fight as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, yeah, just stupid crap like that. You know, one of our clients just hired a business development director, and, and I was like, okay, well, great. What are you going to have him do? And he said, uh, I don't know. I just thought we needed a business development director. So you've got a you know <laughs> six figure guy on the payroll and, and no mandate. You know, they really just hadn't strategized what what even does a business development director do? It just it's just Maddening. And, the, you know, the problem that all family business leaders have is the lack of time. And they say, we don't have time to plan. I literally have had people say, we don't have time to plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, wait a minute. Why don't you go tell your customers that? <laughs> go tell your customers that, that, that you're so busy that you don't have time to plan because they, they're going to be interested in hearing that. Because you're gonna, they want to know. Well, how are you gonna deliver and service my copiers if you don't have to plan, have time to plan how that's gonna happen? And how do I know you're gonna be here five years from now for service purposes if you don't know how to plan? Seriously, mm-hmm. I can't believe those words ever come out of family business leaders' mouths, but they do. And and time is the great constraint because you know people that start businesses are so passionate and they're involved in every aspect of their business, and you know they've got they've got the, a thumb on the financial side and a thumb on the operations side and a thumb on the sales side and and you know some of them even mow the lawn after after five o'clock <laughs> so <that> yeah. <laughs> yeah so they, they just can't help themselves they're high energy and they value um, doing much much more than thinking so but at some point in the lifespan of a business once a business gets to be a certain size you know once it's bigger than just a one-person lifestyle business then you you've got to sit back and push your chair away from that desk and think by god because Mm -hmm. if you're not thinking your competition is and and you've got to figure out how you're going to go to that next plateau otherwise you just you get stuck in the same place and and it's kind of tough so when you're like because i i totally believe that bringing in the outside it really good help because we that right before we sold like a couple years we had built out this executive team that was amazing and Mm -hmm. you know we did go to the well a couple times and had some super big failures and i think there's a combination of things that we could have done differently and i'm curious on what you see that's super successful but not you know the people that you want like, how do you explain to them the situation that they're getting into from the, the the family dynamics? Because they have to have an understanding of that because that that's part of the job description. But then also, how do you financially make everybody on the same page where, like, there was one person that, this is right as I started the business, where there was this gal that was going to be the possible president. And all I thought of it from a second generation is, here goes my chance to potentially buy the business. You know, so how yeah. do you financially get the compensation where this person that's probably really qualified wants equity or wants something and you see it as like a threat to you as the second generation? And then how yeah. do you, so financial, two questions, I guess, how do you financially set that up where everybody's in line? And then how do you vet the the psychographics and the uh, psychology dynamics of the of the family when you're hiring that person? Yeah. Well, the first part to me is is financial modeling. You've got to make sure you can afford this person uh, because I, I have seen people overextend. In fact, I did it 
early on, you know, before I was quite as sophisticated about financial modeling. But you've got to make sure you can afford that next piece of equipment or that next super talented executive before you go out on that limb. And, and I'm amazed continually at, at family businesses that have no forecasting capability. Mm-hmm. They, they, they know their CPA gives. So here it is, August. And, and hopefully everybody's got their 1231 financials from 2016 now, but maybe not everybody. And the CPA comes in. And he says, OK, you, this, you had a good year and you owe this much tax. And thank you very much. And, and so what I want to know is, OK, that's the past, baby. <laughs> right. What, what about the future? And, and it is amazing. Most people really don't sit down and model out their finances. And, you know, if we do grow at this rate, what's that going to do to our balance sheet? And are we going to screw up our loan covenants with the bank? And they just don't know how to model anything. And they so they go to their CPA and they say, can you help me with this forecasting? Because I, I really need to model out the future. And the CPA gives them a blank stare. And, and because, you know, I get paid for history. I get paid for putting the right number in the right box on a tax return. I don't get paid for, for modeling the future. And, and, you know, I really don't know how to. I mean, really, 99% do not know how to. It is shocking. Isn't it really is just totally It's agree. amazing. So either you figure it out on your own. It's not that damn complicated, really. Or you go out and you find some, you know, 29-year-old recent MBA graduate that can do it <laughs> in his spare time. But it's really not rocket science. In fact, you can buy software that does it for you. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, um, all those alternatives are out there. So find out if you can pay for the person first. And then you better have a job description. You better have some limits of authority and things like that. Because if I'm a, if I'm a new person coming into a family business, I know, I know I might be walking into a buzzsaw sometimes. So I want to know where, where my authority really is. Can I fire people? You know, can I hire according to this business plan? You know, where is the business plan? Is there something in black and white or is that something I need to be working on as a part of my charge? So define the role, define the responsibilities, define the accountability, define the compensation. You know, think it through. Give yourself, you know, six months or 12 months to really think it through and then go out and look for somebody with the understanding you might have to try it once or twice to get it right. And then what was the second part of the question? I forget. Well, so, um, no, I think you kind of answered both of them because it, it was about like just really understanding that they can work in the family dynamics because it's really oh, challenging yeah. where like, okay, like yeah. how do you deal with like the bickering or bantering or like the random, like just knowing yeah. that like this is not like this is not target corp where we're like, you've got very well, specific- keep, keep in mind that any successful executive in any industry has been through a lot of bickering and bantering. <laughs> it may be not, maybe not to with the intensity level that a family business gets Ripping into shirts and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Hey, we, we had fist fights and uh, even gunplay in our family businesses. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, but if you now, if you can find someone who has run a family business previously, they will already have those scars, right? They already know, and they're out there. There are people that kind of almost specialize. One of our consultants ran three different family businesses um, before he found us, and and that. But he was that bridge management. He would stay for X number of years and turn the company around and make it successful and profitable, and then he would ride off into the sunset with a big bonus and you know take a little time off with the kids. Um, it was a good lifestyle. So how do people, to, 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 then the next question was, or part of the question was the financial. So other than the big salary, whatever it might be, you know, a lot of the people that we were looking for on that executive piece, you know, I had one gentleman that was like, Hey, there's three legs of the stool. There's cash, there's bonuses, and then there's equity. And you yep. know, I, if anybody knows their stuff, they should have some sort of, you know, tenacity to ask for something like that. What are some mm-hmm. of the, the, the structures that you've seen to uh, accommodate for that? 
Right. So um, that's a, a perfectly reasonable ask. Now, it doesn't mean every family business should consider it, but, but it is perfectly reasonable to ask. And I would say the family needs to make the decision, are we a business family or a family business? So by definition, a family business is going to stay in one family in terms of ownership. And, and outsiders are probably not going to be allowed to have direct equity. A business family, on the other hand, makes decisions based on, the, on, on what's best for the business. And sometimes outsiders owning stock can fit into that mold. So make the decision, family business. And, and by the way, just so you know, statistics show that people that make that objective decision to be a business family create $6 of net worth for every $1 of net worth by family businesses. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that to me is a, is a deal maker right there. When I saw that, I was like, okay, forget, forget about it. We're, Mom, sorry, we're not going to hire your drug addicted son <laughs> just so he'll have a place to go during the day. Yeah. Uh-uh, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. So yeah, that, now suppose that, that you decide you're a family business and shares are only going to be available to the family. Well, that's okay too. You could set up a phantom stock. You could even give direct ownership for a period of time. Uh, one thing when any when any uh, business own has multiple owners, if you don't have a seriously terrific 21st century buy sell agreement, you're you're going to find yourself in trouble at some point. But that's a great tool because suppose you do have a talented non-family person that comes aboard for a period of let's say eight years. Well, that buy sell agreement could be adapted, and that person become a party to it, and it says, "Great, you're going to come aboard. The value of the stock is is this today. Here's our valuation formula." And uh, and then look when you've done a good job, the stock is worth two X. Therefore, you get this many dollars because you moved them from one X to two X. But at that point, the buy sell contract requires that the shares come back into the family. So you're really not out anything. Well, you're out a lot of money potentially, but the, the shares stay within the family. And so that would have maybe stalled your your concern mm-hmm. where you where this person wanted equity. You think, holy moly, this guy's really taking equity that ought to be mine one day. Well, that really won't be an issue if you've got a good uh, buy-sell arrangement or a phantom stock arrangement, which is the same thing, it just just without direct ownership of shares. Well, and what what you just said, I think it, it's all coming from the financials, right? And coming from data, where like, I mean, if you have a way to value the business right now and it's all based on value growth, then who cares, right? Because if the growth wouldn't happen otherwise, and it's done by sweat equity, and you can give them some bonuses like like phantom stock, like you said, it's all. It all makes sense based on the numbers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it, right because the whole thing in business is win-win. And if somebody's moved the needle significantly, and maybe he has to grow at three x. So we, we we did that here, and we brought in a guy, and we said, okay, you here are your targets, and by God, he hit them. That's awesome. You had mentioned the twenty-first century by saw grant. What are some of the criteria that people have that are doing? really, really successful buy-sell agreements. Yeah, we've, we've seen a bunch of stuff over the years, that's for sure. So I think there's about 35 elements to the buy-sell agreement now, and not all apply to every single family business, but they ought to be considered. So all of them cover death, right? And we think about the four Ds right away. So there's death, disability, divorce, and disenchantment. And a, and a basic buy-sell agreement should cover all of those things. I mean, if, I, if I'm a shareholder and I become disabled and I can no longer contribute, at some point, you know, should I continue... We assume the business is growing. Should I continue to enjoy that appreciation? And you know what happens to my salary and all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. That all should be decided. But there's there's other funny things too. Like suppose we go out. Suppose um, and this really happens. Suppose a brother and sister own a business 50-50. and it's a capital intensive business, and they go to the 
the bank and they say, um, boy, we really need to borrow about five million bucks here. And the bank says, sure, no problem. Here's your resolution. Get your sister to sign it. And the sister says, oh, no, no, I, I'm not. I'm not pledging my personal assets. No way. Forget about it. Well, so what's the brother going to do? Right. He's the operator of the business. And, uh, you know, the sister says, what's going to happen to my S distributions? And, and he said, well, we're probably going to have to curtail S distributions while we pay back this loan. She said, hell no, because that's that's a big lifestyle issue for me because mm-hmm. you know, they were basically spending that quarter million dollars a year they were getting free and clear. Well, I mean, after you know, the after tax part. Anyhow, um, yeah, so one of the provisions is if we borrow money, who's got to guarantee it? And if you're not willing to step up and guarantee the, the, the debt that the business might necessarily need to operate, then why should you participate in the appreciation or the distributions or anything else? So that prevents inactive shareholders from whipsawing active shareholders over an issue like that. So that sounds like a stupid thing. But that actually came up, at, you know, 20 plus years ago with a brother and sister. And so we've included it in our buy-sell agreements ever since then. And what happens if you've got five or 10 shareholders in your family business and, you know, 62% or 65% uh, want to go ahead with an initiative, but you can't quite get over that two-thirds majority requirement, you know, is there a drag-along clause um, in the agreement? That, would you? Yeah, so sometimes we put in drag-along clauses. And if we've got lots and lots of shareholders, and sometimes, sometimes we put in, so simple majority is okay for some decisions, depending on what they are, 51%. Some decisions might require a supermajority of 67 or even 75%. Well, what if you're really close to that 67%, you're at 65%, you can't quite get over the hump. Can the majority, the 65%, require that the other 35% move along? And in some cases, we've required that they have especially where you've got a whole bunch of inactive shareholders and only a handful of active shareholders. So, you know, there's lots of things that you you can think about, but really what we're interested in two things, we're interested in business success and family harmony. And and it, it's unfair over long periods of time for, for minorities to have veto power over family business majorities. And so that's why we write buy-sell agreements that way on occasion. So how do you? And by the way, we we don't write them. We're not attorneys, but yep. we tell the attorneys how to write them. Yep. So wh- how are you dealing? You know, you've met. You were mentioning active versus inactive. I think that's a super common situation where you've got active versus inactive. So how are you dealing with the the voting and the decision making with that situation? And then how you know one step further? How are you splitting off the con- conversation around the family estate versus? sweat mm-hmm. equity. And I think those are probably two different topics. Yeah. Well, active versus inactive shouldn't come up too much. People get really confused. They, they confuse ownership with employment. Mm-hmm. And so let's say, let's say that I have a brother that uh, owns some shares in the family business. Can he walk through the back door and tell an employee to go take out the garbage <laughs> or, or to tell an employee to quit doing task A and go over there and do in task B because in his mind as an owner, he thinks something ought to be done differently. Well, let me ask you a similar question. If I walk through the door of a General Electric plant, I, I bet I own shares in General Electric and so, what am I, IRA or 401k yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. If I walk in the door, am I going to talk to the employees as if I know how to direct them? Hell no, not in a million years. <laughs> so why would a shareholder in a family business walk through the back door and think, you know, this actually happened once. <laughs> uh, um, a family business had a big blow up because the seventeen-year-old recent high school graduate had come aboard, and he did own shares, and um, they were very busy. They were in their busy season, 
And uh, he goes and guys uh, grabs a couple of guys off a job site and has them come mow the lawn at his trailer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. So he clearly did not understand the boundary between owning shares on the one side and working in the business at a low level. He was an entry-level employee. He, he was basically taking guys at his level and making them go mow the grass as an owner. So part of that is education. What do, what do active shareholders do? Because they're employees. And once those boundaries are clear and the authority of the active shareholders is clear, like if I'm the president of the company, I can hire and fire. I can bind us uh, for certain obligations, including financial obligations. I can do X, Y, and Z. And as long as I'm hitting my targets, as long as I'm, I'm getting near the targets, I'm within 90 or 95 percent of the targets on the, in the business plan. The inactive shareholders shouldn't say jack for the most part, except at the annual shareholders meeting or the quarterly shareholders meeting or whatever we do, however we communicate. Mm -hmm. They don't really have much to say. So the first part is education. What do owners do and what do employees do? And then family employees have certain rights and privileges and owners have rights and privileges too, but they're few and far between. Your, your, your privileges, you're going to get it. If I run the business properly and, and I hit the targets in the business plan, then you're going to get a big ass check. And, 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 it's, and one day, if we, have, we have this buy-sell agreement, you're eligible to shell, sell your shares and cash out for a big chunk of money if you want to. Mm -hmm. uh, so there really shouldn't be a lot of issues. There are. <laughs> yeah. But there shouldn't be a lot of right. issues between active and inactive shareholders if you have your governance squared away and if you have your boundaries crystal clear. And sometimes it requires a little re-education. People forget. But it's okay to be reminded once in a while. So... Uh, as you kind of shift the transition and, and so there's this big topic that I've run into with um, clients of mine or uh, people I've talked to of control versus ownership and the financial rewards of both. Because I think control, mm -hmm. ownership and financial rewards get really muddied together. How do you mm -hmm. separate those? Well, I don't even know if I understand the question. So, uh, when control... Okay, like, so like who controls every, every, the business? All the people that I know that own these, you know, the first gen, they just like control, right? They want to make sure that, like, yeah, they, they want to control everything. Yeah, control understand. the money, all that, like you had said. So then, then you've got control, but then, you know, when you're getting into family businesses like this and their net worth, it's, it, it's asset preservation is so much more important than being, you know, bullheaded to keep everything on your name. So that way you have to just have a $200,000 premium insurance policy to cover the taxes. Like there's, intelligent ways to transfer non-voting shares or equity and all that stuff. Yeah, where, sure. So yes, the, I think there's the business owner can have control and or financial rewards that don't impact their life, but can shift this stuff to, you know, create, yeah. create this infrastructure. So does that make sense? Yeah. Is that a little bit clear? Yeah, there, there's a lot of ways. And, and you're right. That first generation is usually very, 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 very controlling. And I've got a great story about that. There was a guy that ran a funeral home in Tennessee. He's dead now. But, um, in the wintertime, you know, people would get the sniffles or maybe maybe even uh, uh, the flu, and, and, and he controlled the Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you had a cold, you had to go into the boss's office and ask for some Kleenex. And depending on how he judged the severity of your cold, he'd give you two or three sheets of Kleenex. I mean, that's how much he, con he wanted to control the expenses of his business, and that's what kind of idiot level he took it to. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that story. is a true story. <laughs> Why would anybody work for someone like that? <laughs> See, that's, well, they're, the people that work for him are the lowest of the low. There are people that have been beaten up in life uh, so many times that yeah. they, they, you know, one more beating isn't going to hurt them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. You can't attract great employees if you're, if you're an <laughs> asshole. And that's basically the way that guy was behaving. Yeah. A, yeah. 
So they do want to control everything. I mean, how many pencils you have on your desk? You know, mm-hmm. what, you don't need a new stapler this year. You can have one next year. I mean, that that level of control that founders want is really quite insane. Uh, but their identity is so t- tied up in the business, they they almost can't help themselves. But it gets a little better as the generations go along. You know, as and, and if you think about those founders, many of them, me included, grew up really poor, and they've never had anything before. And so this is this is a new thing. It's like, it's almost like an NBA player. Uh, you know, he's he's a kid. He grows up in a single parent household, and they're dirt poor. And all of a sudden, he goes to college for a couple of years, and maybe gets a little money under the table, but not a great deal. And all of a sudden. He's a cajillionaire and and he's getting paid 20 million bucks a year to play basketball. And, you know, he doesn't know what the heck to do with that wealth. He's never experienced it before. And family business leaders are the same way, especially founders. They they don't know. They're not used to being wealthy. This is a fairly recent occurrence in their lives. And certainly they don't think of themselves as wealthy. That's why they're such hoarders. Right. Um, well, and- so that next generation, it gets a little easier that they, they grew up you know, in a nice house and maybe country club membership and all that. So it gets easier as. As time goes on psychologically, I think maybe people identify with the business a little bit less. So, you know, when you think about going back to your, your point about they, they might not think of themselves as wealthy. And, I, and I, you know, we were in that situation where you're technically your asset is worth a lot of money, but you're, you're literally cash poor. You know, so you're living mm-hmm. off of salaries or distributions or whatever, but then there's this ownership issue where, so technically on paper, you're going to owe the government a lot of money when, if you were to, if you were to die. So mm-hmm. how do you, like, how can you? And, you know, the way that I've described it, and I might be wrong or whoever knows, but the way I've been articulating is you got a foot in the cash flow, current, present tense bucket, and then mm-hmm. a foot mm-hmm. in the whole overall family estate wealth. And how do yeah. we mitigate? It's schizophrenic, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, you're trying to make all the money you can. But on the other hand, you're trying to minimize all that money so you don't have to pay tax. So I think it's idiotic for the tax tail to wag the dog. And I know so many family business leaders are obsessed with not paying tax. I think that is idiotic. If you're successful, I, t- I knew a guy once and he, he's a car dealer, really successful guy. And he said he had three sets of books, uh, one for him that actually told him how the business was doing, one for the bank that kind of showed a pretty good, you know, pre- enough numbers to make sure the covenants were met. And then he had another set that he gave to Uncle Sam and because he didn't want to pay tax. And he said the happiest day of his life was when he just went, he said, by God, we're just going to keep true numbers from now on. And it just simplified the heck out of things. He paid a lot of tax, but, you know, just trying to keep up, which are the real numbers, it did drive you nuts. So the tax tail shouldn't wag the dog. Second piece of that is, unless you're worth, oh, I don't know, 50 million bucks, 100 million bucks, you shouldn't pay any tax. To me, the estate tax is is voluntary. And there are ways for you to keep control of that business you love so much without paying any tax. It's really absurd that that people get so wrapped up around the tax axle because I know. You, you, you're probably ultimately you're not going to have to pay any tax. What's the unified credit now? 11 million bucks. Mm-hmm. And, and with discounts, you could probably be worth 20 million and not pay a nickel of tax. Well, do you know how many family business people are genuinely worth 20 million bucks? Not that damn many. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they just get all worried about nothing. Basically this, the guy with the Kleenex, you wouldn't believe uh, how much money they spent on estate planning attorneys to protect an estate that wasn't even worth $5 million. <laughs> the unified credit would have exempted them from any tax. Yeah, yeah. And yet they had paid tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand to lawyers over the years to make sure that estate <laughs> was, was small enough to not pay any taxes. I mean, I'm almost, I'm, I'm at the point there. I've made myself mad. <laughs> yeah, right. That well, was such an absurd situation. Well, it is. And, and, 
people screw their books up to avoid that tax. I mean, you can't tell the health of the business, which by the way, should any of those four D's happen and potentially yeah. you have to have a fire sale, your books look like shit and you're, no one's going to pay anything for it. That's right. And that exact thing has happened to a buddy of mine uh, who, who he, he works with a whole bunch of auto repair businesses. And those guys will take cash under the table, <laughs> right? So they'll say, so, so now I'm 50, I'm 65 years old and it's time to sell my business. And my neighbor comes along and wants to buy it. And he looks at the books and I, hey, you're not making any money. Right. Yeah, but I'm taking 75000 a year under the table. Great. Cash. Don't tell me that because I don't want to talk to the IRS and I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> well, you know, yes, yes, that's exactly right. But on the other hand, why would I believe that? Yep. I mean, all you're trying to do is drive the price up and I'm not going to pay for something that I can't see or I can't touch. You're mm -hmm. telling me this money disappeared. Well, you know, you're an idiot because you just screwed yourself. I hope you enjoyed not paying tax because you just hosed yourself yeah. at age 65 and now you can't sell your business. You fucking idiot. <laughs> Love it. I know. I totally agree. I, I literally had this guy. He had, uh, he had, he was buying, he, he wanted to buy this, uh, cabinet manufacturer and the guy told him, he's like, well, you'll, you know, I want the, you know, I was like, I want like $8 million for it because I get, I take 300 grand in cash a year. And he was actually concerned. I'm like, dude, do not touch that with a 10 foot pole. Like, like you're just going to believe him. And first of all, you're going to partner with these other idiots that actually knew that. Yeah. I'd say a perfect world is okay, fine. Take your under the table money until you get to be 55 and then, and get 10 years of good solid financials underneath you after that. Because if you want to sell it, you better be able to document the real numbers. Otherwise you're going to murder yourself on the, at sale time. So I completely agree with you. It, let's say, okay, let's say for the, the, the handful of families that are in that bigger, you know, estate net worth with the size of the business and, you know, a lot of real estate and stuff, such like that, you know, is there ways like, I mean, cause again, then you are dealing with the state tax problems and there, and it can get pretty significant, but you know, the, the ownership versus control, it, like I've been trying to explain this to a few of our clients where you can start giving, you know, discounting and giving it to your kids, you know, the non-voting shares or whatever the, so that way it's not part of your estate, but you still control and have all the financials at the, you know, yeah. at your disposal. Yeah. So there's no reason totally. to be, you know, pigheaded and keep it on your name. Just, just, just switch to voting and non-voting stock. Boom. Done. Wow. That doesn't cost you anything. Right. That's not even a recapitalization. <laughs> if you're an S company, you're voting shares and non-voting shares. Right. Whammo. Yep. You just you just preserve control, and and now you can move all those non-voting shares out and pay, and pay no tax. It's simple, honestly. People get so crazed about taxes, and and any, I mean, literally, no one should pay taxes up to some huge, incredible net worth. And 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 we can show you on one piece of paper exactly what to do, and you take that one piece of paper to your lawyer, and boom, you're fixed. <laughs> It's uh, it now, lawyers don't want you to do that because they want to because it only they takes want a half to, hour, not 10 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's the Wizard of Oz. They don't want you to see behind the curtain. You know, they, they want to charge you 15,000 bucks for their legal documents, which is fine. I, I got no problem with people making money, but I just I just I believe in keeping it simple. And so and I'm not even an attorney. And, and you know, I don't think just knowing the basics of the rules. Right. Like, here's, How can it be? here's exactly what we want to do. Can you please just draft it up or uh, yeah, uh, legal? Gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Wayne, I really appreciate the conversations. I, I've enjoyed it. I wish I would have met you a long time ago while we owned our business because we were batshit crazy and a lot of different problems. <laughs> uh, my dad and I are still best friends. So I'm very great. fortunate for uh, coming out the other side 
uh, whole and uh, with a good relationship. But if there's any of the different topics that we talked about that you want to highlight, um, what would it be? Oh, people. You, 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 whether whether you want to be you know a hundred million dollar business or a one million dollar business, go out and get the best people you can, and and treat them with love and kindness because they just make your life so much better. You know, being a skinflint, and we've seen a lot of people this way. They just don't want to pay people, and I'm I pay my people outrageous sums, and I'm and I'm so happy because they you know they take the slings and arrows, and I don't have to. So I have a maybe maybe I could have made more money personally. But I'm so happy to share it with these other people because they make my life better. And if you can have that balance between a great life and also making a pretty handsome living, boy, why wouldn't you take it? Oh, that I couldn't have said anything better than that. That was great wisdom. And it is true. I mean, it is so true. I mean, we went through three like horrible uh, IT directors as we're building out our uh, um, outsourced IT. Finally, Annie'd up paid a huge recruiting fee, got this guy in, and I literally, my life changed in one day. <laughs> that, it's, I'm telling you, it makes all the difference in the world. Good people just make all your dreams come true, and bad people create their own set of nightmares. I mean, you're really doubly, you know, it makes your life harder, and then they, they add fuel to that gasoline yeah. fire. So, I yeah. Love it. Wayne, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, it's uh, wayne.rivers at familybusinessinstitute.com. Wayne.Rivers at FamilyBusinessInstitute.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.